for the things we have going on in our community here at the beginning of the year. Um, gathering tomorrow with students, which they seem pumped, which is awesome. Um, prayer retreat, excited about that. We need to be pumped about that. Um, but looking forward to how God's going to use uh, Vania and Janika and Josh is going to be sharing that prayer retreat. Looking forward to that. And I think it will be transformative for those who participate. It is a beautiful place, certainly. And also looking forward to our chili cook-off and a little competition. Um, We do give away an award, in case you were wondering, those of you who are competitive in spirit. um, The winner gets a golden spoon. And last year, let me just say, Jordan Evans won, and he was working that day at the fire. See? Here we go. Let's, Let's get it going. I love it. Um, Jordan literally said, I want you guys to know, he said, I don't have to be there to win again. I said, but if you want to know Jesus, you do, you know, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. No, it's good. Uh, But Jordan, he's been talking trash. He's like, I'm running it back. We're going to win again. And uh, it's no big deal. So just so you guys know, if you have good chili, be prepared for a battle. Okay. It'll be fun. I'm looking forward to that time together. Um, we have kicked off the new year with a brand new teaching series called At Home, Living with God in the Modern World. And we kicked it off right here in the middle of what's called the Epiphany Season. So we've gone from Advent to Christmas to now we enter into this multi-week period leading up to Lent called Epiphany. And I broke down last week briefly what Epiphany means and some of the themes of Epiphany, but essentially means to reveal or to manifest. And in particular, it looks at Jesus through the lens of his divinity. And we were able to kind of see how in John chapter 1, this notion of Jesus and his baptism, which is a key theme of Epiphany, is connected to abiding or resting or living at home with God. Now, this name was inspired, and the name of the teaching series was inspired, quite obviously, by the scriptures, but also my intrigue with Dwell Magazine. Did anybody check out Dwell Magazine this past week after I referenced it last Sunday? Not a one. Okay. <laughs> Uh, but Dwell Magazine, it's architecture magazine, it's all about design and homes and beauty and things that I enjoy, uh, has a subtitle, which is At Home in the Modern World. And so I was struck with this notion of dwelling, living, and being at home, but specifically at home with God in the modern world. And our goal for this teaching series over the next few weeks is to examine and look at what it means for us as human beings, as followers of Jesus, to abide to dwell, to remain, to rest in, and to live our life at home with God in this modern world. Not to just visit God off and on, but to have a life where you are living at home with God in society. Just as Dwell Magazine isn't so curious in where a person lives, but rather how a person lives in their home, I'm curious for all of us 
to look more intentionally at Jesus's vision for how we are to live at home with him, how we are to abide. What does that actually mean? What are the implications? Why does it matter? What does it look like? What does abiding produce? And how do we do it? Because I want us, all of us at Emmaus in our community, to be an abiding people. I want to know confidently for myself that I'm abiding in the vine, that I'm abiding in Jesus, that you are abiding, dwelling in God. That is my deepest desire for you and for us. And we started last week, as I referenced, by looking at John chapter 1, because the theme of abiding doesn't begin in John 15 like most of us think, but it begins in John chapter 1, and Jesus' invitation to a couple of John the Baptist's disciples to, and I quote, come and see. These young disciples of John the Baptist, probably in their late teens, middle teens, are curious about the person of Jesus because they've heard John the Baptist prophesy about him and talk about him. John the Baptist sees Jesus walking alongside the Sea of Galilee, and he's like, oh, look, there he is, the Lamb of God, the one that takes away the sins of the world. So then John's disciples are like, deuces, John the Baptist, I'm out of here, I'm going to Jesus. They show up with Jesus, and they're like, yo, Jesus, where are you staying? Where are you hanging out? Where are you abiding? Where are you living? I, I want to come with. That's essentially what they're saying. And Jesus, being the good philosopher that he is, just says, what do you want? What are you after? What do you desire? What is your deepest longing? And he looks at all of us, deep in our inner being. He says, what do you want? What do you long for? Not your strongest urge. What is your deepest urge? very different. And so they're like, I want to hang out with you. I want to spend time with you. I want to go where you are abiding or living. That's where we began. You can listen to that teaching series if you would like to kind of catch up if you missed it. But this was the entry point and is the entry point for their discipleship and our discipleship to Jesus. When we talk about being apprentices or students or disciples of Jesus, it begins by being with him. By being with him. The gateway to our becoming like Jesus is being with Jesus, plain and simple. Hanging out in his presence, giving him our attention, focusing on him, living our life with Jesus. This is the gateway into discipleship with him. Now, three years later, in Jesus's ministry, this idea posture, and the original call comes back up. This time, it is the very last night Jesus spends with his disciples before going to the cross. It's the very last night in the upper room. I want you to think for a moment about the final words from an influential friend or a family member in your life that you will probably never see again, or at least not for a very long time. Your best friend or your homie or a professor that's taught you a lot or a teacher, confidant, your mother, your father, coach, whoever. Think about the most influential human being in your life and their last words. 
they're packing up. They're moving across the world to, I don't know, New Zealand or somewhere, Bangladesh, I don't know, Eastern Europe, Northern Asia, I don't know. They're packing up and they're moving to a remote part of the world where there is no Wi-Fi. Uh, there is no cell phone signal either. What would be their parting words? What would be their final call for you? That frames for us this moment for Jesus and his disciples. His final words. His parting words before he goes to the cross. These final words of Jesus in John chapter 13 through 17, which make up a rather large chunk of the entire gospel account, in particular for John, roughly 25%, in fact, are referred to commonly as the upper room discourse, which could also mean the upper room teaching, or the farewell discourse of Jesus. But if these are his final words, and they make up 25% of John's gospel account, I'm thinking they're probably pretty important for Jesus. They have an extra gravitas or weight to them. This is not just casual reading of the scripture. Oh, it's a cool metaphor, a cool parable, Jesus. Now, this is the final words that he is giving his disciples before he goes to the cross. So let us go there this morning. John chapter 15. And I'm just going to read the first three verses because this is where we're going to be sitting in this at-home teaching series. John 15, verse 1 through 3. And I'm going to be reading to you all out of the New Living Translation. Hear the word of the Lord. This is Jesus speaking. I am the true grapevine. Now keep in mind, this is the very last of the seven I am statements of Jesus in John's gospel account. He makes seven statements regarding his identity, who he is, and what he has come to do. And this is the last one. I am the true grapevine. And my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine. Other translations say in me, which is a key phrase for us. That doesn't bear or produce fruit. And he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so they will produce even more. You have already been pruned and purified by the message that I have given you. I'm going to keep reading verse 4. Remain in me and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine. And you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. This is the word of the Lord. Now, grape vineyards were and are in abundance throughout Israel. They're in abundance throughout Israel. I actually want to play a game with you this morning. Can we have some interaction this morning? Is that okay? Can we play a game? I have three photos that I'm going to put up on the screen here. And one of them is Israel. One of them is Napa Valley. And one of them is the Yadkin Valley here in North Carolina. But I want you to tell me which one is which. Okay? 
Let's just go through these quickly. So here's picture number one, all right? Picture number one. Picture number two. Picture number three. Okay? Go back to picture two. Oh, that's one. Okay, great. Two again. And three. Okay. Three different parts of the whole world. All right? Which one do you think, first of all, was Napa Valley? Okay, can you go back to number two? That's Napa Valley. Well done. Good job. We know the wine lovers in the room. Yes. Uh-huh. Yes. You're imagining yourself out there with a Cabernet as the sun's going down. Anyway, all right. Which one was Israel? Oh, okay. Go to number one. Go to number one. That is the Yadkin Valley. That's here in North Carolina. Okay? Number three, that is Israel. Way to go, Morgan. You did a great job. Thank you, Morgan. Yes. Yes. If you want to volunteer on ProPresenter, I'd love to talk to you after our gathering. I was fascinated because they look relatively similar. Relatively similar in some regard. But... Vineyards, though we don't think about uh, winemaking and, and, and grape growing in connection to Israel, is actually very much a part of the agricultural life in the Middle East. So this was very known for Jesus, a very familiar metaphor, especially the journey between Galilee and Jerusalem. In fact, this is interesting, grapes in particular were one of seven mentioned agricultural crops of the promised land in Deuteronomy. When God is talking about the promised land, grapes were one of seven mentioned agricultural species or crops. Grapes are also actually the most mentioned fruit throughout the entirety of the library of the scriptures, whether literally or metaphorically as a symbol. So this was a familiar metaphor that Jesus was using here, in particular the connection to a vineyard. Jesus uses a picture of a vineyard all throughout his teachings and parables, very familiar for him and his disciples. In Isaiah chapter 5 and throughout the Old Testament, this is also interesting, Israel as a people and nation was referred to as the quote-unquote vineyard of the Lord. Or Psalm 80 a vine brought out of Egypt and planted in the promised land. Other archaeological evidence shows that a picture of a gold grapevine was around and etched out of the opening into the sanctuary of the temple in Jerusalem. I have a picture of that for you to see as well that provides kind of a newer rendering of the temple in Jerusalem. You can see there's these grapevines above the entryway into the sanctuary of the temple. There were even homes all throughout Israel that had grapes above their doors. So grapevines were like the unofficial mascot and logo of the Jewish people. If they had a logo, it was grapes, right? The grapes even better than the horned frogs, 
But can we talk about that game last Monday night? Did anybody watch the national championship college football? Okay. There's only one person in this whole church that even cares about that game, and that was Jay. Um, Grapes were very close to the Jewish people. Vineyards were. And this image had everything to do with connection and intimacy to Yahweh, as well as an image of obedience to the law of Yahweh. So connection and intimacy to Yahweh, as well as this image of obedience and fruitfulness to the law of Yahweh. Now here, Jesus calls himself the true vine, which last week, as I referenced, assumes other vines aren't true. That there are counterfeit and falsified vines in our life. They may promise life and fruit, but produce death and disappointment. I showed you guys last week a natural artist by the name of Rebecca Louise Law, who does installations all across the world. And she does often these upside-down meadows of fresh flowers hanging from a museum ceiling. And they're in installation for a period of time. Beautiful, beautiful picture of these fresh flowers. But eventually those flowers fall and they die. They get swept up. This is a picture of society. Promise beauty, promise life, promise if we attach ourselves to this vine, it will produce this fruit. But ultimately, if we live long enough, it doesn't produce what it promises. But he says, I am the true vine. I am the pure vine. I'm the obedient vine, the genuine vine. These other vines may make promises, but they produce death and disappointment. The theologian Rudolf Boltman has this to say regarding this statement of Jesus. With the words, I am, the revealer presents himself again as the object of the world's desire and longing. That he is the true vine means that no natural life is the true life. That life such as man seeks and longs for can be had only in association with Jesus. So if we think that life comes from somewhere else, then we are denying Jesus's claim. We are essentially saying Jesus is a liar. He's not the true vine. It's not really an either or. It either is or isn't. Jesus is saying, I am the true vine. As I mentioned last week, it is though Jesus is saying that the life that you and I long for is found in me. The life that you want, the deepest part of your being, is found in me. I'm not an option, necessarily. I just am what I am. I am the true vine. One other scholar says that there is no other I am statement that has as much intensity between Jesus and the ones in which he is addressing as what is found here. The life that you and I long for is found in me. And all of us are in search of fulfilling our deepest longing. 
there are three questions that every human heart asks. Three important questions. The first is, what is the source of my meaning? What is the source of my meaning? And life and meaning go hand in hand. So you could also say the essence of the question is, what is the source of my life? Where do I derive a sense of meaning? What is the source? What is the origin? The second is the question, what outcome or fruit do I want to see in my life? When you're 65 years old, what do you want to see? Over the next year, what do you want to see? I'm sure some of you made goals for this year, resolutions, things that you want to change, outcomes that you want to see come to fruition. We have this question, what outcome or fruit do I want to see? And the third question is, how do I live or access power to see it through? How do I live from this source of meaning in order to achieve this outcome? Source, fruit, power. Three questions every human heart has to wrestle with. You are actually here today because of some sort of intrinsic connection to being in this place. It is answering some sort of why question, whether you know it or not. Our decisions, our choices, our our, our connections to people, our connections to our job and vocation are connected intrinsically to some sort of existential vision of what it means to be human and where we derive a sense of meaning. And Jesus goes after all of these questions in John chapter 15. All of them. Source, fruit, power. And by Jesus revealing himself as the true vine, he is presenting himself as the true, the true source of life. There is no other source of life. That he is the true source. The vine provides, if you did not know, all the nourishment, food, substance, and life to its branches and fruit. And because he is revealed as the Logos, he is also the source of meaning in life. Because the Logos in the ancient world, not just within Christianity or Judaism, but within the Greco-Roman philosophical world, the Logos referred to both the origin of life and the meaning or the essence of life. And he has been revealed by John in John 1 as the Logos or the word. So he is saying that I am the source of life and the source of meaning in life. Nothing else and no one else is. Radical claim, Jesus. In him is life eternal. In Jesus is life eternal. Both quantitatively and qualitatively both forever life and flourishing life. We tend to think sometimes of eternal life as just about living forever. Well, some of us might be terrified of that, to be honest, right? Um, But then he goes further and says, no, 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 I, I came to give you life abundantly. Eternal life isn't just about quantitatively living forever. It's about a quality of life. 
the essence of life. It's about flourishing. It's about beauty, goodness. Think about the moment in your life where you felt the most full in every bit of your being. Jesus is saying, I've come to give you that, but more forever. Flourishing life. Now, what I love, I've been, I've been kind of hinting at it in this passage from Jesus, is that it isn't a passage filled with suggestions or ideas. Jesus very rarely gives suggestions or just concepts to kind of marinate on. Think about this. Here's a, here's a thought. He, he doesn't really do that. But rather, he is making absolute statements about how life actually is and works. I am the true vine. Remain in me and you will bear much fruit. You can do nothing apart from me. Absolute statements about reality and life. He isn't saying here that, oh, you know, you should believe in me as the true vine. It's not even a command. Or you should trust me as a source of your life. You should. You should. Might be a good idea. He's like, no, I am. (laughs) I am the true vine. He is saying, I am the source. There is no other source of flourishing life. I'm the true source. In essence, only one outlet has power. Only one story is true. Only one Wi-Fi connection exists. That's trying to be relevant to our modern technologically advanced society. Only one Wi-Fi connection exists. You know, one of the things I hate is going to a place and having to ask for the Wi-Fi password. Jesus is like, you know what the Wi-Fi password is? My name. You're like, J-E, right? (laughs) He is the gateway to power. The only source. The only connection. Now, here's the deal. You have to wrestle with that if it's true or not, because he's saying it is. You can deny the claim, or you just trust him with it. And our life points to that reality. How you live points to if he is actually, um, if you are believing what he says is true or not. This is why faith is a component of our formation. We trust in him. I'm trusting in what you're saying, Jesus. I'm trusting in who you are. Even if I disagree, even if I struggle, even if there's wrestling inside of me, even if there's tension, even if I don't like what he has to say. Right? Most of us are cool with Jesus until he calls us to change. Most of us are cool with kicking it with Jesus until he says to submit to me. Most of us are cool with calling Jesus friend, but not Lord. Because that requires us to say that we aren't. And it's counter to the narrative of our day, especially in society that is centered around exclusive humanism. That the human being is at the center of the universe. This is counter to that. But here's the deal. I've had some conversations with people before, and they're like, honestly, like, me being my own God is actually terrifying. That's a lot of weight and pressure that I honestly am not able to like uphold, you know, like that produces great anxiety in me, fear, all pressures on you, buddy. You know, Jesus is denying all of this. He's like, that's not how life works. Life is actually centered not on you, but on me. I'm the true source 
of life. Only one outlet has power. Only one Wi-Fi connection exists. Now, keep in mind that this statement came three years after the original invitation to come and see. It's been three years for Jesus and his disciples. He has said before that he is the way, the truth, and the life. This is an exclusive claim again. He has said that out of him flow rivers of living water. He has said that he is the bread of life. He has said that that he came to give life and life abundantly. He said all these things. But now, on the final night with his trainees, three years after this invitation to abide and live with him, he tells them at a meal while they are drinking wine that he is not only giving life, that life isn't just centered on me, but I am the very source of life. I am the very source of life. This is what is happening at this moment. I have found it very fascinating that it is at the communion table that Jesus is making these claims. Very, very fascinating. But it is here where he is saying that he is the essence and the source and the origin of all of life. I want you to take a moment for the next maybe a minute. And I want you to talk to the person beside of you. And I just want you to respond with how that makes you feel. What that makes you think about. Ready? I've I've told you guys we're going to have some dialogue. So here we go. Talk to your neighbor a bit about the idea that Jesus is the source and the essence of life. Now I want you to talk about, with your neighbor briefly, what are some narratives around us that present other sources of life? Talk about that. Where are are there some other sources of life in our society? Okay, well done. I hope that these conversations can carry on afterwards um, at lunch or at house church this week. 
But Jesus, again, this last night with his disciples at a meal with these individuals is saying that he is the very source of life, that he is the originator of life, he is the creator of life, and that he is the inventor of life itself. He is the writer, the author of life. You know, it's interesting that DNA is also called the book of life. It's often referred to as a book because there's so many letters, right? I found that very interesting because it's letters and Jesus is the word. He is the logos. He is, he is writing life in essence. Uh, now, a couple of weeks ago, you, you might have been aware that uh, in the middle of the Buffalo Bills and Cincinnati Bengals game, uh, DeMar Hamlin made a tackle, and as he made a tackle, um, he kind of fell to the ground unconscious and ended up having to be resuscitated on the field. You guys, are you guys familiar with this, DeMar Hamlin? Yeah, even the people who don't watch football know what I'm talking about. Um, terrifying moment for all of sports and all of the, the U.S. at least. Um, but, but I found it very interesting, the amount of people praying for his life. Everywhere, Twitter, newscasters, nobody was involved in debating about the divine nature of some creator beyond us. It was like, we got to pray. I don't even have faith, but I'm going to pray. I don't know what I'm shooting up at, but I'm going to pray. You know? And in that moment, it wasn't like good vibes or good energy or thoughts. Nah, bro, you on your knees begging God. To bring this man back to life. I found that utterly fascinating. And I heard a story of one reporter who had shared that he honestly felt a bit jealous of some of the folks that he was interviewing because he wasn't a person of faith. And these people were like leaning in. He's like, I, I, I want that. Why? Why were people begging God? Why were people who deny God most of their life, seeking him in a moment like that. Because life matters. Life matters. I've said this before, but we as people mourn at death and we beg God when it seems close because life matters. Death isn't supposed to be normal. We weep at death because it's not supposed to be this way. But we as humans in the modern world, with all of these luxuries at our fingertips, especially in the U.S., we live in the illusion thinking that we will somehow live forever. But tomorrow's promised. I'm 25 and healthy. I'll be here tomorrow. We live in this illusion until we're faced with tragedy and we begin to pray. Why? Because maybe prayer works. Maybe God is real. We saw it on display in front of all of the world. Life matters. There is no other giver of life than Jesus. And in that moment, folks didn't call up the president. They didn't call Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk or download some app. Ooh, resuscitation app. Yes, I think it's going to work. They didn't watch some TikTok video. They prayed. They sought after God. 
Because people realize that nothing in this created world gives or sustains life itself. Jesus is the origin, the essence of life. If you don't believe me or him, go in search of the truth. Go after the truth. Jesus then, in this passage, goes on to refer to God the Father as a gardener. As a gardener. And this is funny because John is telling us a pseudo-new creation story. In John 1, it mirrors Genesis 1. John 1 begins with, in the beginning. Genesis 1 begins with, in the beginning. So gardens and vineyards are everywhere throughout the story of God. At the very end of John, actually, a resurrected Jesus will be mistaken as a gardener by Mary. Jesus himself will be mistaken as a gardener. But here Jesus says that I'm the vine, my father is the gardener or the vine dresser. Now, gardeners do a couple of things. The first thing that a gardener does is they cultivate. They cultivate, which means to prepare soil for growth and production, to loosen or to break up. This is what the essence of cultivation is, to loosen or to break up, to prepare soil for growth and production. The Holy Spirit in your life seeks to cultivate your heart in order to receive more of him. To loosen some things that you're holding tightly to and to break up some calloused, hard soil in order to receive the seed. Now, we have to be receptive. We have, again, I mentioned last week, our heart has responsibility. But the gardener cultivates. He prepares. In the realm of theology, this is called prevenient grace. The grace of God goes before us, enables us, and enables us to respond. He cultivates soil for growth. The second thing is that the gardener cares. He cares. I'm going with three C's here, so it's easy to remember, right? This means that he is nurturing. The gardener, he or she, is nurturing. The gardener waters, provides nourishment to the plants. And the gardener is personally involved, intimately involved with his or her plants. Just ask Cody Thompson how involved he is with the flowers that he grows. Actually, ask Angie. Ask his wife how intimately he is involved with the production of his flowers. Because he cares. He cares for these plants. He cares for their life and their fruitfulness. The third thing that a vine dresser does in particular, and all gardeners do, but really a vine dresser, the third thing is that they cut back. They cut back. The primary job of a vine dresser is to cut back and prune the branches of a vine. The primary job to cut back and to prune. And when we live at home with God, he cultivates, he cares, and he cuts back because he is a gardener. This is what he does in us, and it's what he does for us. Let's look at verse 2. 
of chapter 15 in John. He cuts off every branch of mine, Jesus again, that doesn't produce fruit. And he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so they will produce even more. You will see the connection here between abiding or remaining, the Greek words meno, and fruit bearing. You will see meno and fruit about 10 times in this section. They're going hand in hand. And as we will discuss more in depth next week, fruit bearing is a natural byproduct of abiding or living at home with God. And I've seen in this verse in particular, the natural process of pruning produces fruit. The pruning isn't for punishment, but for production. Pruning in your life, my life, isn't punishment. It's for production. Now, another understanding of the verb for cuts off or takes away, which, by the way, I think is not a good translation of this passage, can also be to lift or prop up. But it can also be to reposition, to move the branches, because they have begun to drag into the dirt. It could also read, he props up or he repositions every branch of his that doesn't bear fruit. So when you and I are living with God in intimacy with God, abiding in him, but we're not bearing fruit. In other words, we're not beginning to look like Jesus. We still look like our carnal self. We look like the rest of the world. He will reposition us in order to bear fruit again. Another word you could use for repositioning is redirecting. He will redirect us in order to bear fruit, or he will lift us up. This is an encouragement from the Father, an encouragement to lift up, but also to redirect what it is we're going after. Majority of our discipleship is not about destination or arrival, but about direction. Are we constantly reorienting our direction towards Jesus and his kingdom? So he's repositioning us if we aren't bearing fruit. Now, here's what's fascinating in this metaphor. If the branches are flexible and bendable, it means the branches are alive. Did you catch that? If the branches are bendable and flexible, it means those branches are alive, which means for us, if they can be shaped or repositioned, they are living. If you and I can be shaped by the Spirit, by the Word of God, then you are living in the vine. If you can be repositioned, if you can be changed, if you can be shaped, if you can be molded, if you can be reoriented, then you are living and abiding in the vine. If you can be formed by the potter, you are his clay. So both repositioning And pruning or cutting back or taking away is meant to produce fruit. So what does this tell us? It tells us there is purpose in pruning. The father doesn't prune just for the sake of it. He prunes because he cares. He prunes because he loves. And he prunes because there is purpose in the pruning. We see it in the metaphor. I actually have another picture for you guys to see the process of pruning a grapevine over a period of about three years. Year one, year two, year three. You see the pruning process and the fruit production multiplying. Now, I also find it interesting 
that guess how long the disciples have been with Jesus? Three years. How long does it take for a grapevine to produce mature fruit? Three years. That means for the first two years, it's nothing but pruning, cutting back, taking away. There's growth, take it back. There's growth, cut it away. We see the connection here with pruning and production. Some in the realm of uh, viticulture, which is a word I just learned, that's all about you know, growing and raising grapes and winemaking and all the things, uh, would argue that the primary task of the gardener is pruning. That's his primary task. But the pruning of fruit bearing branches actually multiplies the fruit of the branch. So when we prune back, cut away, it actually multiplies the fruit. So there's more fruit. You ever gone to the grocery store? And you've seen some fruit, and you're like, that is, no, that is so small. Like, no, I'm not getting that. I'm not paying $5 for that. No, you want big, luscious, large fruit. You know, maybe you're not that way. I don't, you look at me like, I don't even eat fruit. Why are you talking about fruit? (laughs) We want fruit to be like large. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Uh, Henry Nouwen, the the famous um, Dutch priest and and psychologist, says this. He says, when we look at a pruned vineyard, we can hardly believe it will bear fruit. But when the harvest comes, we realize that the pruning allowed the vines to concentrate their energy and produce more grapes. You look at a pruned vineyard like, man, that looks rough. Bear but it's so that they can produce more fruit. I love this from Christine Kane. She says, God prunes us when he is about to take us into a new season of growth and expansion. Not just for us, but for the sake of others. So it is the gardener who prunes, the vine that produces the fruit, and all we are asked to do is to abide, to remain, to hang out. That is the directive. Because when we abide, when we live at home with God, we, by default, produce fruit. Now, the Greek word for pruning can also mean to cleanse or to purify or to purge. Let's look at verse 3. You have already, talking to the disciples, you have already been pruned and purified by the message Notice here, some of your translations might say something else. By the word for which I have spoken, which there's the word logos. Notice the mechanism for purification here is the logos. It's the mechanism for cleansing. God speaking is a cleansing agent. God speaking to you and I is a cleansing agent through his written word, his graphe, his recorded word, and his spoken word. When God speaks through his spirit, he is cleansing us. Okay? So what happened here in this, in this text. You've already been pruned and purified by the message that I have given you. Now, this time of year, I feel like, at least in my home, maybe yours as well, many people begin to see the amount of excess that we have accumulated in our homes over the last year or so. Where it feels like you and I have five of every possible item. You ever look at some of your household items, you're like, why do we have six of those? Honestly. Why do we have four toasters, man? 
We don't need four toasters, right? Like, why do I have five of the same pair of shoes, honestly? And I mean, that's convicting for, for me, I'm just saying. But, uh, like, why do we have multiple of the same things? So at the beginning of the year, we feel all refreshed and renewed. It's a new year. We're going to purge. We're going to clean out our closet, our home. Let's go through all the junk and get rid of some things. Let's, let's, let's clean our home. So pruning most certainly regards the cleansing of sin in our life. But I think in our modern world, it primarily has to do with the removal of excess. Why? Because excess often interrupts our ability to abide and hear the logos, or the word of the Lord, or the voice of the Lord. Not just material excess, but also how and where we spend our time. Some of us excessively spend time doing things that aren't producing fruit. And so the pruning process, I think for a lot of us in this era, is a removal of excess. Dr. Tony Evans has a wonderful teaching series on this passage in particular. And he says that pruning is the cutting away that which siphons off life. So there are things in our life, good and bad, that are siphoning off the life that we need and the nutrients that we need to flourish. So the pruning process is cutting away those things that are taking the nutrients for us to flourish. Some are good things that need to be cut back. And some are things that are, quite honestly, deteriorating our inner being and eating us alive. Little shoots on a vine begin to spring up on the branch that produces nothing and takes something. These are called sucker shoots. I read this this week. Very interesting. Sucker shoots. And all of us got some sucker shoots in our life. Things are just sucking nutrients, sucking the life that God has for us, sucking away the things that God has, the energy and the power, sucking or diverting the nutrients for us. Now, uh, in our uh, recent home that we just moved from, Jordan and I, for the longest time, had a problem with our upstairs master bathroom. Anybody had a problem with their bathrooms before? Yeah, None of y'all have bathroom problems, like with your shower, toilet, something? Man, okay. Um, Tough crowd today. But uh, anyway, we had a problem with our shower because it was an older home, and we would turn on the shower, but water would come out of both the shower head and the spigot at the same time. And so there's a pressure problem, right? Like that's when you're like getting so close to the shower head because there's like no water pressure. That was us, you know, for a long time because we were just, you know, I'm not fixing it, right? Like, I can't. I just can't. Um, But we realized that there was an issue with what's called a diverter behind the spigot that diverts the water in certain directions. So when you pull that little nozzle up, it should divert the water through the shower head, not the spigot any longer. There are things in our life that are causing diversions from where the life-flowing Spirit of God is supposed to go into different directions. And so, and like, why is the shower head of the Lord dripping? Because water's going elsewhere. You know why we're dry often? 
Because the water's been diverted into a different direction, into other things, good things. Not saying they're bad things, they're just being diverted. Jobs, relationships, friends, Netflix. Our past, trauma, hurt, things that are needed to be dealt with. But they're they're diverting us from the life-flowing spirit of God. So a majority of our discipleship to Jesus, as we've been told, I think, over and over again in our life, has been presented as adding things to the list. Add this, add that, which is partially true. But it is, if not more so, I think, about removing unnecessary excessive distractions. Majority of our formation is going to be about, I think, removing unnecessary distractions. Things that are diverting the life flow of the Spirit into our life. Things taking energy that produce no fruit. Things taking our ability to listen to the voice of the Lord. Resulting in, I think, two primary diversions. One, our loves, our loves, and our attention. These are the two things that get diverted. Our loves and our attention. And as you are living in intimacy with the Spirit, you will begin to notice that there are areas of excess and diversion in your life and in my life. So this is when the pruning, the purging, the cutting away, and the removal begins. If you and I can't hear the Lord, you and I may need a cleansing, purging. Uh, Greg McEwen wrote a um, best-selling book recently called Essentialism. Um, And in the book, he's really just talking about um, how companies and businesses and individuals can organize their life through just living a life focused on essential things, right? And in it, he talks about that the word priorities didn't exist before the 1900s. That when we first saw the word in the 1400s, it was originally a singular word. It was just priority. There couldn't be multiple first things. Just one. But only in our modern era would we try to make multiple first things. Priorities. The idea of priorities is false. It doesn't exist. You, you can't have multiple first things. It's impossible. You can have important things, but not first things. It's actually impossible. And pruning friends and family is about the loving gardener purifying our priority and putting us in places where we have to choose what is most important in order for us to bear fruit. Tony Evans makes the case. He says, one reason we're not producing Fruit is that we're hanging too much in the dirt. You cannot hang out in the dirt and get the sun. When vine branches hang out in the dirt, they aren't able to get sunlight and nutrients in order to produce fruit. And most of us, if we're honest, can look at our life and see various distractions. They're taking away, quite literally, time from us to be with Jesus, or at least our attention our attention, because we want a life of abiding, not just a moment daily of abiding, 
That's necessary. Keep that in mind. It's necessary. But we want a life of abiding. And the beauty of our master gardener, friends, is that he knows exactly where to cut away in order to not harm the branch. He knows how far to go. Pruning hurts, but it's never meant to harm. It's always meant for production of fruit. Ninty Wright says that the vine dresser is never closer than when he's pruning the vine branches. If you're going through a pruning right now, the Lord is near. The Lord is close. Our awareness of his presence, I should say and clarify, is close. He's very close. So my question for you as we close, Vinny, I'm going to get you to come on up and we'll move to the table. My question for you is this. It seems very simple, quite obviously. But what in our life, in your life, my life, needs to be removed or cut back? Because the Father is going to enable you to cut those things back or away. Or he's just going to take it. He's just going to take it. So what is diverting your attention? What is diverting your loves? That's my question for us as we come to the table today. Now next week, to give you a little preface, we will explore more the concept of fruit bearing as it connects to this metaphor. And then we will wrap up talking more in detail how we are to abide and what a secure attachment to God looks like. That's where we're going. But part of living at home with God is pruning, cutting away, taking back. And in Israel, pruning season happens in the spring. And on that very night where Jesus shares a meal with his friends, it is in the springtime. And pretty soon, because the father is the gardener, he will lead him to the cross to be pruned, to be taken away. Jesus voluntarily goes there. The father weeps the brokenness of humanity. In a mysterious way, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all participating in that pruning process. So when we come to the table of our Lord Jesus Christ, know that it's an invitation to pruning. It's an invitation to cutting away the things that are a distraction. Why do we do this in remembrance of the Lord? Because it's a practice and a habit that helps us to redirect when we get distracted. And our lives are chaotic and crazy, and I get it. We all have things going on. All different types of good things, challenging things. But the source of life is Jesus of Nazareth. He is the Logos. He is the source of flourishing and eternal life. I'm just going to pray and let a moment of silence kind of sit in the room. I have a prayer team come up. I have our folks. Too.